Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. In 1996, in 1996, his book about death, Herbert Fingeret argued that fearing one's own demise was irrational. He said this, when you die, there is nothing. Why should we fear about the absence of being when we won't be there ourselves to suffer? 20 years later, he's now in his almost 90s, facing his own mortality, this philosopher realized that he had been wrong. Death began to frighten him. He couldn't think himself out of it. Fingeret, who, was, who for 40 years had taught philosophy at the University of California in Santa Barbara, he'd written extensively about self-deception. And at 97, he'd wondered whether he'd been deceived himself about the meaning of life and death. This is what he said. It haunts me. The idea of dying soon, whether there's a good reason or not. I walk around often and I ask myself, what's the point of it all? There must be something I'm missing. I wish I knew. This is a man who's trained in rationality, who's trained in the work of logic to make sure that he is not deceived so that he can discover truth. But he can't rationalize away his fear of death. I think his life is like so many of us. It's this incredible story of the battle that we have to make sense of this physical reality and the souls that animate these bodies that God has given us. I understand his problem. I myself work to rationalize away fear. Um, since I had kids, I became like really afraid of flying. Is anybody else fear, fear flying at all? Joe, I got you. I see that hand. <laughs> um, I, I, I used to, I never had any anxiety about flight. And then all of a sudden, about, let's see, eight years ago, when I had Elsie, um, something radically shifted. I was on a flight back from Africa, and I had a panic attack because all I could think of was I'm in a, a piece of tin flying at 600 miles an hour, five miles over the ocean, and there's nothing between me and death. Something about having a kid, maybe the stakes were higher, like leaving her as an orphan was something that like, it's a tragedy I knew that would just shape her life so much. So I tried to use my rational brain to deal with it. I had a fear. I thought, well, if I just understand it better. So, I, you know, I went on YouTube and I watched some videos about aerodynamics so that I understood how, like, air moving faster or slower over the wing made it lift. Still doesn't make sense to me, but I know more about it. Um, I, I learned about how planes are manufactured, about, like, 
I even, I even read up a little bit about like the certification process for flights, and this was before the Boeing 757, so it, you almost believed it. But we, you know, like I was trying to rationally deal with my fear, and I know that they're safe. I know in my head that it's very, very unlikely that I'm going to not get to my destination safely. I know that scientifically, it, maybe this will help you, Joe, or whoever else is struggling with this, you're 19 times safer in a plane than in a car. You're 19 times more likely to die every time you step into your vehicle than you are in a plane. It makes you feel better about a plane. It makes you feel horrified about the reality of our roads. But it doesn't feel any different because when I drive a car, I feel like I have control. Even though statistically, I'm much more likely to be killed by other people and their terrible decisions than the ones I make. Sometimes it just doesn't matter what you think about something. Our bodies know better. My body knows that it's not natural for humans to be moving at 600 miles an hour, five miles above the earth. This relationship that we have to death, existential dread is what the philosophers call it, it changes over the course of our lifetime. When you're a little kid, maybe before three or four years old, you don't even think about it. You don't think about death at all because, you know, you don't think about much. My four-year-old is a knucklehead. He doesn't think about anything. But then you hit four, and all of a sudden, the, the, the questions start to mount and multiply. Um, Theo was asking me the other, kind of, the other day what kind of body he can have in heaven. So it's like a video game, and he's, like, thinking through, well, I want a dragon head, but I want lizard scales like he's like he's like working through like the perfect body that he gets in heaven because he's thinking about when i die i, I want to know what it's like in the next world and then for many kids between the ages of seven and ten they experience their first set of existential dread they wait lay awake at night staring at the ceiling and, and for me it was when i was eight years old my grandfather died and he had like blood clots and i just imagined a blood clot forming in my brain as i laid there <laughs> as an eight-year-old thinking about death. You, you go through this season between time about four and 14 where you're fascinated with it and you're learning about it and you're starting to think about what death is. Maybe you have a death of an extended relative. And then you hit 15 and what happens is you become indestructible because you stop thinking about death. From 15 to 30, most people will not even attend a funeral because of the stage of life that they're in. And if they do, a, if they do attend a funeral, it's, they try to ignore the reality of it. They just try to attend to the social um, work of, of, of mourning, but they don't want to think about their own dread because they need to do things that are really dumb. And so they can't do those things if they think about death. And so they ignore the reality of it, that indestructible age. And then we hit 30, and what happens is we have kids or we get to know about the world and things slow down and our bodies start to decay. And then we start wondering if this body's going to make it all the way. And then we hit 45, and our parents start to pass away, and we're staring death right in the eye. And then we hit 60, and we're attending more funerals than dinner parties with our parents' generation, our friends. Cancer starts to take over our lives. I call this season, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but that's the reality. When you hit 60, that your life is filled with death. 
We had a somber time on Friday remembering the deep cost of Jesus' work on the cross. And Good Friday is all about death, and Easter is all about resurrection. But have you ever thought about, like, what it really means to be resurrected? Like, it's, it's not just an afterlife. It's a new embodied existence. It is these bodies or some other new body God's going to give us that gets imputed with ourselves, our soul. Have you thought much about it? A body is built cell by cell over decades. It's remade and it's remade as the years flow by. And your soul, I, I would say your soul grows too as your brain and your body develop. You, who you truly are, becomes human. Aware of its place and existence and it starts to fear for its future. And then one day your body's going to run out of strength. The cells are going to stop replicating or they're going to create some dangerous cancerous masses that are going to strangle your body. And one day you're going to stop breathing. Your body will no longer be able to convert oxygen into lifeblood. And your body will start to decay in the earth. Have you ever seen a body? For a lot of people, even if you've been around for a while, it's likely that you've never seen a dead body. Our, our world has sanitized itself of death. In the Middle Ages, death was everywhere. Even a hundred years ago, death was everywhere. And all of a sudden, we figured out a way to take death out of our lives. Immediately after someone dies, their body is taken away from the house. It's prepared. It's covered. It may never be seen again, but by the closest family members. But a body will start to de decompose almost immediately. This body, the one I'm in, all of its biochemicals necessary to sustain life, they, they're no longer meant to function that way, and so they'll just kind of fall apart. If creation is God ordering this formless void that is the universe, death is the slow decay of all the things that God has put together. And this takes us to the Easter story. We're in Luke chapter 25. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, but he had not agreed with, agreed with the decision and the actions of the other religious leaders. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea. And he, he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body and then he took the body down from the cross and he wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and he laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. I'm so moved by this passage because Joseph loved Jesus so much that he wasn't afraid to grab hold of the body that he had had and care for it. Do you love someone close enough in your life to care for their body after its death? That's the sort of passion that Joseph had for Jesus. He wasn't going to let him sit out and rot on a cross and let the crows eat out his eyes. He was going to take care of this body that God had given him. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation as the Sabbath was about to begin. They had to do it before sun, sundown on Friday afternoon. As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee... His disciples followed and shared and saw the tomb where his body was placed. And then they went home 
and they prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time that they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. Do you see how this is like real life? This is people caring for somebody in a very physical way. They went and gathered up expensive spices because, get this, you don't care what happens to the body if there's no use for it later, right? Do you care what happens to the body if it's just sitting in a grave? But if you're expecting a resurrection, and this was, this was a, a, a deeply controversial thing in the first century between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in resurrection, those who are waiting for the kingdom of God to bring about this new flourishing, overwhelming kind of life that would even bring the dead back to life. And the Sadducees who said, there is no resurrection, this is all there is. This is not a new thing. All of the existential ennui that our modern world feels about existence is as old as time. People wondering what happens. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking those spices they had prepared. So it's been about a day and a half since Jesus has died on Friday evening till Sunday morning. And these women show up. You have to imagine they have headaches from crying. You know those morning after headaches, after weeping and mourning. They've had two days to just feel the depth of their loss. They loved and they served Jesus, so they got up early, maybe tears just right at the surface, that numbness and disbelief, and they, they couldn't even properly mourn yet because it was too risky politically. If they, if they were to, to go out in the streets and to, and to wail and mourn like the Jewish custom was, to, to sit shiva as a community around a death, Jesus himself was a risk to them at that point. They've gone to some lengths to prepare and to care for the body of their friend. And they have these frail attempts to stave off decomposition. But this is what happens. Luke 24, verse 2, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of our Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, Two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember when, you t when he told you back in Galilee that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified? You can imagine that's like, come on, man. Like, we haven't been thinking about what Jesus taught four months ago, but the, the angels are, like, shaming him. Remember, he told you what's going to happen. Why are you so sad? He told them that they had to rise again on the third day, and then they remembered that he had said this, so they rushed back from the tomb to tell the 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the Mary, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men. Yeah, right there, just sexism. They're like, let me explain this to you. We'll go show you how Jesus' bodies. You probably went to the wrong tomb. Did you check? Did you check the map? It's right there. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and he saw 
the empty linen wrappings. And then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Even though Jesus had told them time and time again that he was the Messiah, they're still blown away by the reality of what they're experiencing here. The body that they had seen decimated by torture had breathed this last on Friday. There had been a spear shoved into him with blood and water pouring from his side. The body of their Messiah King. It stopped being a body. It stopped being a collection of cells sitting in a tomb. And once again, it was filled with spirit, with the pneuma, the breath of God. Resurrection, what is it? Is it our bodies breathing again? I'm going to tell you, if you've ever seen a resuscitated patient who doesn't have any brain function and their lungs are being filled with air, I wouldn't call that resurrection. That's some sort of half existence. It's, it's more like duct taping on a severed limb. It's not just breath inside something. Is it about these bodies? Is there something special about your DNA and, and these cells and how they interact with each other in the world that, that has to be reanimated for us to enjoy the presence of God in the, in the world to come? Like, what is it about, res why resurrection and why not reincarnation? Reincarnation is your spirit and something essential about you that you don't remember gets put into somebody else's new body and then you become that person and, and then you're like two people together. Why is it not reincarnation? Why is it this resurrection? And why do we hope for it so much? I, I resonate with that philosopher at the beginning. Do you ever wonder, why does it matter what happens if I'm not here? Like when you think about that, that rational question, does it matter if, if, I, if my body ceases to exist, does anything beyond this matter? Why are we so afraid of no longer existing? What, that's kind of crazy. There would be no pain or no angst or no struggle if we cease to exist. Why do we, like Herbert Finnegrette, the philosopher, why are you and I so, so afraid of no longer existing? Humans have been trying to figure out what this soul is and why it matters for all eternity. It's what makes us human. This is the thing that's particular about us. Bears don't sit around wondering about what's going to happen to them in the next life. Monkeys... They don't create elaborate stories to describe the spiritual realm beyond their senses. This is something that's very unique to us, and there's something deeply unique about us that we have this existential dread and this awareness of our existence. It's not just, scientists are gonna tell you it's a quirk of evolutionary overreach. Basically, those who are more afraid of dying made more babies because they stayed alive. And that's true. Dumb people tend to die sooner. I'm not going like, to lie. People who don't care about life, they tend to die sooner. But the, the worry that we have about existence is so overdeveloped, it can't be explained by any sort of evolutionary process. And I think in some ways we just need to pull back and get some perspective. First, there's something about us that is eternal. Something in us that we know is going to exist and belong far beyond these bodies. It's why we care. It's why you show up here. Not just to 
please your relation that got you here on, a, on an Easter Sunday, but it's why we feel drawn to think about what's beyond. We call this thing that's going to survive us the soul or the spirit. It's who you are when your body no longer works. And we, we get some glimpses across Scripture in it. First, we're going to start with the weirdest one first, okay? In 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul, who was the king, he's trying to figure out what to do. And so there was this famous prophet who had died named Samuel. And he thought, I, gotta, I, I have to know what God wants. So he, he goes and finds a witch who has a way to create this medium between himself and this dead prophet. And Samuel's individual memory and personality have persisted so that he can speak through this witch to Saul. That's a crazy story, right? But it shows you a little glimpse into the other world, that there is something about us that is true to us, that is a part of who we are, that's deeply connected with our experience in this world. You will remember all the things that happen here. In the New Testament, Jesus promises on the cross to the to the thief next to him, as they're dying on the cross, he promises, you will be with me in paradise this day. Jesus is looking forward and saying, there's something much more. In John 3.16, Christ promises eternal life, or this, this life beyond for those who believe. And later in that same gospel, he promises that everyone who believes, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's something about us that will persist on. Uh, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus gives another little glimpse into the world beyond this one. And we see that Lazarus is in, uh, theologians call it like, um, it's, a, it's the afterlife and it's separated into a good and a bad. This is not heaven and hell. This is the afterlife before heaven and hell. It's paradise or Abraham's bosom or Hades and Sheol. The righteous go to Abraham's bosom and to paradise to wait. The unrighteous, those who are God's enemies, they go to Sheol and they experience pain because they're separated from God. And, that, and, and Jesus gives this little picture of there's some chasm between the two. And Lazarus, who was a poor man in life but was a righteous man, he can hear and see the suffering of those who are in Sheol or Hades across this expanse. And we can go on and on, but, but this is something that everybody knows deep in their deepest being, beyond rational scientific thinking, there's some part of you that's going to survive beyond this world. And what happens there is very, very important. Otherwise, you wouldn't care. If it was meaningless, if this afterlife was just some sort of party, you wouldn't care what happens. Your body wouldn't know that it needs to deal with this question. And, and this last year, just this last year, I've sat with several of you. As your relatives' bodies have started their transition from life to death. And, and I was struck by two of them in particular. They were desperate for this assurance. Even though they had thought about it some in their life, all of a sudden, the immediacy of death brings about a clarity about the next life. The lucky among us are going to die in a quick, tragic accident, right? Amen? 
Not enough time to think about this existential dread, but the vast majority of us are just gonna watch our bodies disintegrate into cancer and heart disease and diabetes and dementia, but that's not the end. The world is this cosmic battle between good and evil, and evil destroys and brings death. That's why we hate death. That's why, that's why we have this sense of justice that says the death itself must be eliminated. It's why we require justice for those who bring death in our world. War, disease, famine, flood, pestilence, oppression, it is a sign of a struggle between the evil in the universe and the God who created all things because the creator creates, not destroys. In John 10, 10, we have this, this verse that we talk about a lot. The thief came to steal and kill and destroy. There is this dark world. My purpose, Jesus says, is to give them an overabundant, rich, and satisfying life. Death, this thing that we dread, is not God's plan or purpose for us. It's how we know that there is some resistance in this world from evil forces, because death is not God's plan. In fact, he's literally doing everything he can to destroy death. And like a good father, when he sees us struggling, when he sees us suffer, he himself suffers. The powers of darkness, the systems of this world, even our own bodies, they, they conspire to spread death like a virus through all of creation so that God himself would ache for renewal. The same renewal that we ache for in this broken world. And Easter is the hope that we have. Death will not have the final say in your life. Death will not have the final say in your body. Statistically, there's somebody in here who has cancer and doesn't know it. That's crazy, right? Each of us is dying actively as we sit here. But death itself will not have the final say. The resurrection, even though it was hotly contested in the first century, in some ways we've, we've stopped asking this question. We're, we're trying to live in that, um, in that time frame in our lives where we're just pretending like death isn't there. But we know deep down it's the question that we have to answer. And when we have those near us have death, when, we, when we're near someone who's going through death, we have to ask again, what's going to happen to them? Our bodies will fail, death will come to us, and then what? Well, let's, let's ask the one who's gone before us. There's going to be a time between this body and the new creation. That's what's going to happen. The Bible tells us that there's this in-between time where we're awaiting the resurrection that will come in the last day. Because God is waiting for this world to be prepared for the justice that it's going to bring. And so there's going to be some time in between where we're in God's presence, but we haven't experienced resurrection into a new kingdom that's coming. It's going to have a place for those who are righteous, those who are God's friends, and it's going to have a place for those who want to be separated from God, those who are his enemies and reject him. He's not going to require you to be with him. If you want him, you have him. If you don't want him, you don't get him. That's the reality of this life and the life to come. For us to resurrect into a new bodily existence, with the Bible, which the Bible tells us is this, it's not, it's not some place out there. What's going to happen in Revelation tells us that there's going to be a, a new heaven and a new earth where this 
we think that this earth is going to be basically remade into what it was meant to be, and heaven and earth are going to come into one thing. It's going to be called the kingdom of God. It's going to be this beautiful 10,000-mile city filled with the river of life and the tree of life, and we're going to be in God's presence. That's what's going to happen at the resurrection. This kingdom of God is going to come to life, and justice is going to flow like rivers. All those who are opposed to God will have exited the scene because they're not going to be forced to be with him. But someone has to kill death to see this kingdom come about. And that's where Jesus' resurrection comes in. Jesus' death on the cross was not just some performative drama. He wasn't there to go through the motions. He really died. His body was overtaken. His physical body was overtaken by the prince of darkness who was prowling around like a lion looking to devour any scent of God's kingdom in this world. And God's enemies had thought that they had won, that they had killed the very creator, the savior, the one who brought to life all things that had been destroyed. But hold on, that's not what was happening. This is a picture, let's see, we got it? Yeah, there we go. This is a picture of a painting that hung in a wealthy man's estate in Richmond, Virginia. It's called Checkmate by Maritz Reich. You guys can see that? Okay. So on the left is who? That's a representation of Satan. Okay. It's called Checkmate because this man is literally in a chess game with Satan for his life. That's the visual here. It's called Checkmate because if you look at the pieces, it looks like all hope is lost. And this story was detailed actually in a, in a chess magazine. I don't know if you knew this. They, there are chess magazines. And this was, this was written about in 1888. You can go look it up. There was a man named Morphy who was um, a chess master. And he's having dinner at this wealthy man's estate where this original is being hung. And after supper, he was deeply interested because he plays chess and there's this painting. He approached the picture. He studied it intently and turned to his host and said modestly, I think I can take the young man's game and win. He says there's one move. Morphy was challenged as follows. The man who owned the house said, not even you, Mr. Morphy, can retrieve that game. Morphy replied, suppose that we place the men and try. A board was arranged, and the rest of the game, the rest of the company gathered around it, deeply intrigued at the results. But the one move that he had was to sacrifice the king. It doesn't make sense in everyday chess, but in a world where the king himself will resurrect and overcome death itself, the enemy has no power. The king himself died so that death itself might be destroyed. There's one move that Satan didn't see and the world didn't see, his disciples didn't see, one more move that would save that man. Instead of saving the king, the king himself would sacrifice his own body. He would bear the punishment for this Faustian bargain that the young man had made. He would bear the shame that his family would be made to walk. He would himself be forsaken by God, descend to hell in his place. He would take the natural consequence of sin, which is death, and he would suffer and die. Jesus really died. His body was really dead. There was no question about it. 
You have to wonder, though, the disciples are sitting around going, if this is the Messiah, I don't want to be a part of that kingdom, right? If this is the king, why would anybody want to follow this guy? As our previous president said, he's a loser. Who would want to follow him, right? No. The king himself would storm the gates of Hades. What we see in 1 Peter is that he opens up a prison of souls, preaches to them, and sets them free from their captivity to darkness and death. Peter says that God himself would enter into hell. Ansem, he described the work of resurrection as Christ's victory over death. That this is the work that we enter into when we enjoy resurrection. And with that resurrection, that one move is complete. Paul would quote the psalmist declaring feet over death itself, saying, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the thousand-year-old words of Ezekiel would get new meaning. In chapter 37, he says, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath in you and make you live again. I will put flesh and bones on you, and I'm going to cover you with sin. I will put breath into you, and you will come to life, and then you will know that I am the Lord. I love this picture because it's he isn't just filling de- decaying bodies with breath. He isn't just filling decomposing bodies with souls. These aren't zombies. But rather, he's recreating us. And just like at first in Genesis, breathing life into dirt and seeing the very image of God come to life, that's what Ezekiel is telling us, that Jesus passed through death, came out the other side, a walking, talking piece of this new kingdom where resurrection is normal. Resurrection is just average in God's kingdom. We saw in John chapter 11, right before the the crucifixion, what happened? Jesus himself raised Lazarus to, said this, to say this is what's going to happen. What happened at his death, but those souls were raised to life in the city and proclaimed the good news that resurrection is coming. And Jesus' people then went out and shared throughout the entire Roman world that God himself had shown a way to resurrection. We no longer have to fear what we don't know. We no longer have to fear what's going to come. If you're here today, you know of the one who has power over all life and death. You know that he is the king who has sacrificed his own life so that your resurrection could happen, the one you've been hoping for. You can put your hope in a kingdom filled with justice and peace and righteousness and new bodies to house our renewed souls. And none of it because you're a worthy opponent of death, but because death could not contain him. Here's the invitation. Be resurrected. Start today by following Jesus to death, by following him so that you can have the resurrection you've been hoping for. Leave behind the death of this world. Set aside your your little war with God, and live fearlessly because death itself has no power anymore. 1 Corinthians says, So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. How do we make sure that we're a part of this resurrection? It's not complex. It doesn't require you to join our church, okay, if that's what you're worried about. It doesn't require you to join our church. This is all it takes. You ready? Follow the king. 
All you got to do is just join in with his little kingdom. And you will enjoy the resurrected life starting today. Those addictions that have been cursing you will lose their power to create death inside of you. Those fears that have been crippling you will lose their power because you have another life coming. You yourself can experience the resurrection now because there is no death that will hold you down. So follow the king. Die to this world. So following the king means we're going to set aside our allegiance to the powers of darkness and we're going to join in with the powers of life. And then we're going to live like resurrected people as a part of God's family, being formed in the way of the kingdom. Because here's the thing. If you die right now, and you haven't been growing in the way of the kingdom, it's going to be really uncomfortable for you in the next life. I don't know if you realize that. But you're going to be in like God's presence, and if you're not formed to love the things that he loves, it's going to be really hard at first. You're going to have to like settle in. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult because your appetites, and your ambition, and your approval, all the things that you need in this world that drive you, those things are not going to fit in God's kingdom. So what we're doing as a community is we're trying to live like God's people now and learn his way so that we belong with him. It's not how we get salvation. It's how we experience the beauty of God's kingdom today. I'm going to invite the worship band to come on up as we're finishing up. I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want, I want to read Psalm 30 together because I think that this is a prayer that gives us hope for what's to come. Can we throw it up on the, on the big screen real quick so they can all read it? You can almost read that. Okay, here we go. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cry to you for help. And you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O oh Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise His holy name. Dear Jesus, this is what we want. We want to take away death's power to drive us in this world. We want to take away death's power to make us a part of its systems. We want to get rid of the fear and anxiety that cripple us day in and day out. We want to experience the resurrected life starting today. And so, Jesus, we, we fall at your feet and say we want to be a part of your kingdom. We're going to follow you. In this life and the next, you get our allegiance. We're going to turn aside from the powers of darkness in this world. We're going to join in the, the promises of your kingdom. Lord God, have your way in our lives right now, here in Boise, as it is in heaven. Lord God, for all those who are struggling to set down their weapons, for all those who are wondering if it's worth joining in with your kingdom and giving up some of the pleasures that darkness provides, Lord God, I pray that they can see through the lies of the enemy, that we could say, I want that life that Jesus came to bring. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. 
We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.